All right, we're in Exodus chapter 4, and uh, what we've covered so far, Moses was born in a Levite Jewish family. He was raised a prince in Egypt, spent his first 40 years in, in Egypt, and then at the age of 40, he was um, he killed an Egyptian and fled the country because Pharaoh found out and wanted to kill Moses for that. So he goes off and he ends up rescuing the daughters of Jethro, who is also known as Rule. He's a Midianite priest, and for his, uh, his, for his service, he ends up getting to know the family, and the priest gives him one of his daughters, Zipporah, for a wife. And they have the first of two sons, Gershom is born. And then at the age of 80, after 40 years uh, outside of Egypt, while Moses tending the sheep of his father-in-law at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the angel of the Lord appeared to him from a burning bush. We talked about that uh, last week. And as we mentioned then, the early Christians saw this reference to the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses and appearances of God other places in the Old Testament, in Genesis and Ex- in Genesis particularly, as referring to the Son of God, who was also divine, and uh, or also known as the Word of God, and who would later take on bodily form and, and flesh and human nature in the incarnation and birth of Jesus. So, uh, from the bush... The Lord said he was calling Moses to return to Egypt and then lead God's people out of Egypt to Canaan, which is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, And he is told that although Pharaoh would resist this call of the Lord to let the people go, that the Lord would strike Egypt with great signs and wonders to bring the release of his people. And that the sign that all of this was was true and from God is that that the the Jews would come back on that mountain, on Mount Sinai, and worship God there. Uh, And then the last thing he said at the end of chapter 3 is that as the Jews are departing from Egypt, they will plunder the Egyptians. They will take silver, gold, and articles of clothing from the Egyptians on their way out. So... um, and then we looked at some striking similarities between the lives of Moses and Jesus, which is what we should expect, because after all, God said in Deuteronomy 18, in the future I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. So the live life of Moses and the life of Jesus, there are some extraordinary parallels that we talked about that, that Jesus was the prophet who would be like Moses. And, of course, uh, Peter in Acts 3 and Stephen in Acts 7, make that connection to Jesus. Um, so as we're, as we're going through the story, we should make a note to ourselves of anything things that remind us of Jesus, and this lesson is no exception to that. Now I want to move forward and, and look in chapter 4. It talks about, first of all, three miraculous signs that will be given to Moses. The, Moses, raised, Moses' first objection that he raised when God called him to this mission is he says, all right, I go back to the people, and they say, this God who spoke to you, the God of our forefathers, what's his name? And so God answers that, says, I am the existing ones. That was his first objection. 
And now he, Moses presents his second objection. Let's read Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the Septuagint. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord did not appear to you. So the Lord said to him, What's in your hand? He said, A rod. Thus he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. So that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. So he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Again, he said, put your hand in your bosom. So he put his hand in his bosom again and then removed it, and it was restored to the complexion of his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor hear the message of the first sign, they may believe the message of the second. Then it shall be, if they do not believe even the two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. And the water you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So, uh, Moses' second objection. What if they say the Lord didn't appear to you? And he gives them three miraculous signs. The first one is the wooden staff in Moses' hand. He throws it down and it turns into a snake. And then he's told to pick, grab the snake by the tail. And Moses uh, has the courage to do that. Turns back into a rod when he grasps it. That's the first sign. The second sign, he places his hand into his bosom and takes it out. And it says it's white and leprous like snow. That's kind of fright terrifying. Uh, and in Exodus 4, 6, and then, and then he puts it back in again, it comes out and it looks just like it did before, just like the rest of his flesh. And then the third sign is he says, take water from the river, take water from the Nile River. He says, this is what the third sign will be. And pour it out in dry land, it will turn to blood. So these are the three signs. Now, question that I want you to think about. Why these three signs? Is there any particular significance? I mean, he could have done all kinds of spectacular things. Gods can do anything. It could have been any miracles at all. Why did he pick these three particular signs? And I I wondered about that. I said, is there something something that's symbolized or represented by these signs. And think about that for a second. Think of the elements that are here. In the first sign, there's the staff, which I presume is a wooden staff. I mean, that's what staffs are made out of. Uh, and, and then a snake. So there's the wood and the, the, wood and the snake. So I think, well, that, that could refer to something there. I, what I think about, I think when I think of wood, I think of the cross. I think of the snake. I think of, of, of Satan. Satan is the, the serpent of old. It talks about in Revelation. It's, Satan appears in the form of a snake in the, in the, in the garden. Uh, 
The second one is the hand that turns like dead flesh. It turns white like snow. It's a terrifying, terrifying sight. I think of leprosy. I think of leprosy as like sin. It makes you unclean. It, uh, you know, it, it, it's something that spreads. It can, it can be contagious. And, or also the idea of something that is dead that comes back to life again. I mean, you think about a dead hand. This is, this is something you'd want to amputate. If, if your hand turned white and was, was like snow, you think it's died. So it, it's, it's like it dies and comes back to life again. And then the third one, water and blood. Well, there's all kinds of things that I would think about in connection with Jesus. Uh, it talks about the one who came by the water and the blood. I think about the blood of Christ that's, that saves us from our sins. Uh, water and blood came from the side of Jesus or any other, I don't know if you can think of any other examples. I think of the story of uh, Cain and Abel. And he was told that his the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. I think about that. You know, you're going to pour it on, onto the, the water, onto the ground. It's going to turn the blood on the ground. Mm-hmm. So I think of a few different possibilities there. That Those are just things that come to my mind. You may think of, you may have thought of those things, or you may think of other things. So I'm thinking, why these sides? Is there something more to it than that? And I'll share with you something that, that, Tertullian wrote. Tertullian is a Christian writer in Carthage in North Africa. He lived between 160 and 230 uh, AD. And he saw these signs as being a form of prophecy about what was, what was to come. And I'll, this is, uh, you know, so I'll read to you what he said. And you know, it's not inspired, but I think it's something worth, think, worth considering. He said, We know that prophecy expressed itself by things no less than by words. By words and also by deeds is the resurrection foretold. When Moses put his hand into his bosom and then draws it out again dead, and again puts his hand into his bosom and plucks it out living, does this not apply as a presage to all mankind? Inasmuch as those three signs denoted the threefold power of God, when it shall first in the appointed order subdue to man the old serpent, the devil, however formidable, and then secondly draw forth from the flesh, from the bosom of death, and then at last shall pursue all blood shed in judgment. So he's, that's Tertullian saying this is basically, it's in, in the form of, of things, not words, it's basically foretelling the gospel of what God was going to do. He continues, To the flesh therefore applies everything which is declared respecting the blood, for without the flesh there cannot be blood. The flesh will be raised up in order that the blood may be punished. Certainly his making alive is to take place after he is killed. As therefore it is by death that he kills, it's by the resurrection that he will make alive. Now it is the flesh which is killed by death, the flesh therefore will be revived by the resurrection. This is, this is from a work entitled, probably to no surprise, On the Resurrection of the Flesh. Chapter 28, which is found in Anicene Fathers, Volume 3, page 565. So this is the whole, especially he's focusing on the second sign where he pulls his hand out and it's dead, it's white. 
And this is like snow. It's, it's a horrifying thought. So it's, he pulls his hand out dead. He puts it, puts it back in. It comes out alive. So this is a, it's a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the flesh. Just, just to consider why, why those three signs in particular that God would use. Uh, let's continue. So Moses now raises a third objection to why he shouldn't be sent on the mission. And the first two objections were, I don't know what your name is. If they ask me, what's, what's your name? I don't know what to say. God answered that. The second objection is, what if the people say, God didn't really appear to you. You're just making this up or you had a hallucination. And then he shows them three signs to show, no, this is legitimate. I am from God here. And so now he comes up with his third objection. And let's read in chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, I pray, O Lord, I am not capable, neither before nor since you spoke to your servant, but I am weak in speech and slow of tongue. So uh, Moses says, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not, I'm not the man you want here. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not, I'm not. I don't have the skill set that you need for this job. You need somebody who's a really good speaker to go in and talk to Pharaoh, and that's not me. So here's my question. Is Moses telling the truth here? Or is he just lying and making an excuse when he says, I'm not a good speaker? Remember what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7. It says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. That's in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. That's what Stephen had to say about Moses. He was mighty in words. He was a good speaker, powerful speaker. And Moses says to God, I'm, I'm not the guy you, that you want for this job. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a poor speaker. I, I stumble all over my words. I'm too slow of speech. What do you think? Do you think he was telling the truth or do you think he's just lying and making an excuse because they don't want to do it? What do you think? So, I see some smiles here <laughs> in the room. Now, let's, let's before we start, before we, we stone Moses here for, for uh, what looks like he may be uh, not very good motives, let's remember he's now 80 years old, and while he had been raised... A prince in Egypt, he's just spent the last 40 years parked out in the wilderness watching sheep. Okay? So, let's let's cut him a little bit of slack here in, in his answer. And I'd also like to consider the perspective of two early Christian writers. A lot of people would criticize Moses for his, his third objection. But two early Christian writers... Uh, had another way of looking at this, and I thought, you know, maybe I better stop and reconsider this, uh, my, my, what I would be inclined to criticize most. And actually, they're two of the very earliest Christian writers. These are people who probably knew the apostles personally. They lived right, right around the same time. The first one is Clement of Rome. He's a bishop of the church in Rome, uh, may have known Peter and Paul personally, and uh, some people think he was the one referred to by Paul in Philippians 4.3. Uh, 
So he's writing on the subject of the humility that Christians should have. He's writing around the year 95. This is a very, you know, outside of the scriptures, this is uh, really one of the very earliest writings that we have from, from the early Christians. So I'm going to quote from him. He's talking about the subject of humility. He says, Let us be imitators also of those who in goatskins and sheepskins went about proclaiming the coming of Christ. And he's talking about, you know, Hebrews chapter 11, the, the world was not worthy of them, the ones who came before. He says, I mean Elijah, Elisha, and Ezekiel among the prophets, and those others to whom a like testimony is born in Scripture. Abraham was specially honored and was called a friend of God. Yet he, earnestly regarding the glory of God, humbly declared, I am but dust and ashes. That's what he said of himself when in uh, in uh, Genesis 18 when he was before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I realize I'm just dust and ashes. So Clement continues, Moreover, it is thus written of Job, Job was a righteous man, blameless, truthful, God-fearing, and one that kept himself from all evil. That's from Job 1.1. But bringing an accusation against himself, he said, No man is free from defilement even if his life be but one day. That's, that's from, uh, I think that's from Job 14. So uh, he's making the point, even Job, who was considered to be the most righteous man on the face of the earth, uh, had something very humble to say about himself and all men. No man's free from defilement, even if he only lives for one day. Continuing, Moses was called faithful in all of God's house. And we know that from Hebrews, which is quoting from Numbers 12. And through his instrumentality, God punished Egypt with plagues and tortures. Yet he, though thus greatly honored, did not accept lofty language, but said when the divine oracle came to him out of the bush, Who am I that you would send me? I'm a man of feeble voice and slow of tongue. That's from uh, Clement of Rome, the first epistle to the uh, Corinthians in First Epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, chapter 17, and Anicene Fathers, volume 1, pages 9 and 10. So, that's his answer. He, Clement looked at this as, this is an indication of one more example of the great humility that men had in the scriptures. That He, he said this was, uh, the, 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 all the great heroes of faith had great humility, and the Christians should imitate their example. Ignatius, another early, very early Christian writer, he's bishop of the church of Antioch, he lived from 35 to 107 in, in Syria, and he wrote a letter. He was heading to his martyrdom in Rome at the end of his life, and he wrote letters to the various churches, and in one of them, he talks about the importance of Christians being humble and humility. And he quotes so many scriptures in this passage, including the one from Moses here. He says, I know that you were not puffed up, for you have Jesus in yourselves. And all the more when I commend you, I know you cherish modesty and spirit. As it is written, the righteous man is his own accuser. That's from Proverbs 18, 17, the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. And again, declare first your own iniquities that you may be justified. From Isaiah 43, 26. And again, when you shall have done all things that are commanded of you, say... We are unprofitable servants. Of course, that's Jesus in Luke 17.10. For that which is highly esteemed by men, among men, 
is an abomination in the sight of God. For says the scripture, God be merciful to me a sinner. That's the man who was in the back who was beating his breast and wouldn't even look up to God in uh, Luke 18, 13. Therefore, these great ones, Abraham and Job, styled themselves dust and ashes before God. And David said, Who am I before thee, O Lord, that you glorified me? In uh, 1 Chronicles 17. And Moses, who was the meekest of all men, that's what it says in Numbers 12, verse 3, said to God, I am of feeble voice and slow tongue. May you therefore also be of humble spirit that you may be exalted. For he who humbles himself shall be exalted, and he who exalts himself shall be humble. That's what Jesus said in Luke 14. And that, uh, that, that quote there with all the scriptures associated with it from Ignatius in his epistle to the Magnesians in chapter 12 found in Anicene Fathers, volume 1, page 64. So uh, it's interesting to me that Ignatius makes a connection between Moses saying, I'm not a good speaker, there, and what he later says in Numbers, that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. That's his attitude. He's, he's an incredibly meek person. He's the, he's the most humble man on the face of the earth. And so when he says to God, I'm not a very good speaker, that's just coming out of that heart. So before we criticize Moses for what he said here, Remember, he was the most humble man of the face of, on the face of the earth, which is perhaps why God selected him for this mission. And it could have been just simply an honest assessment that that's how he viewed himself. That's how the early Christians saw it. In any case, I think all of us can stop and reflect on our own lives, looking at the great heroes of faith throughout the scriptures who accomplished amazing things for God, Seeing it was God working, they didn't think very highly of themselves. So when you're tempted to think highly of yourself, or that you've done something really wonderful or awesome in this life, please don't forget Abraham and Job, who referred to themselves as nothing more than dust and ashes. David as a young man. Uh, Moses, who didn't consider himself to be particularly talented or gifted for the mission that God prepared him. And uh, then, of course, the example of Jesus, of the tax collector, who he's the one who, who leaves justified before God, who's beating his breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, of course, the example of Jesus, who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. This is uh, perhaps one more example of many throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament, of the humility that God wants us to have. Let's continue. God then becomes angry with Moses after the next thing he says. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11. So to this point, God does not have a problem that we can tell with anything that Moses has said, but that's about to change. <laughs> So after Moses said, I'm not a good speaker, God's response was, was, verse 11, The Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? 
Who made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Did not I, God? Now therefore go, and I'll open your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, I pray, O Lord, appoint another capable man whom you may send. Then the Lord was very angry with Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he will speak for you, and indeed he will come out to meet you, and indeed when he sees you he'll be glad in heart. Now you shall speak to him and put my words in his mouth, and I will open your mouth in his mouth, I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, he himself shall be your mouth, and I shall be and you shall be to him as God. Now you shall take in your hand the rod that was turned into a serpent, with which you shall work miracles. So, God answers Moses' question about not being a good speaker with several rhetorical questions. It says, who made man's mouth? Who made the hard of hearing, the deaf, the mute, the blind? Basically, I did, so what are you questioning me for? If I said you can do this, you can do it. He says, I'll give you the words to say. Don't worry about that. It's another reminder if God tells us to do something, he knows what he's doing, and we just need to follow what he says and not come up with objections or excuses. He knows what he's doing, and he's not giving us something he won't give us the power to do. Then finally, Moses comes out and says, could you please pick someone else? Could you please pick another? And the Septuagint says, could you please pick another capable man? Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when, when the Lord said, who can I send to this, this, this terrible people? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Moses said, please, just send somebody else. He didn't want to go. Please send another man. And at that point, God becomes angry with Moses for his lack of faith and, and works out another plan. He says, all right, you don't want to speak. You're going to go anyway, but Aaron, your brother, will be your spokesman. In fact, he's heading to you, right? He's going to be, he's heading to you now. Now, this, in this statement right here, when Moses, out of desperation, says, can you please send another man or another capable man in the Septuagint? There's some, some, some of the early Christians saw in this, there was a prophetic element. Can you send another man? Uh, novation. Who, who died around the year uh, 257. He's an elder in the church in Rome. And he lists a series of prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament. And here's one of them that he includes among the list. And he says, he, referring to Jesus, is spoken of by Moses when he says, provide another whom you may send. Exodus 4.13, he is again spoken of by the same when he testifies, saying, a prophet God will raise up to you from your brothers, listen to him as if to me. That's Deuteronomy 18. So he puts the two together. Moses says, can you please send another man? God told him later on, I will send another man, I will send another prophet like you, and when he comes, everyone must listen to him. So he puts the two together as referring to the same thing. That's in uh, Novation, a treatise concerning the Trinity, chapter 9, found in the Nicene Fathers, volume 5, page 618. 
So let's continue uh, in Exodus 4, starting in verse 18. I'm going to read verse 18 to the end of the chapter. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, I will go and return to my brethren in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in those days after some time, the king of Egypt died. So the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on beasts of burden. And he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Again, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you work before Pharaoh, all the wonders I put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So I say to you, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, indeed, I will kill your firstborn son. Thus it came to pass on the way at the inn that the angel of the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and fell at his feet and said, The flow of blood from my son's circumcision is stopped. So he departed from him. And because she said, the flow of blood from my son's circumcision is stopped. Now the Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God, and they kissed one another. Then Moses reported to Aaron all the words which the Lord had, had sent to him, and all the signs which he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together the elders of the children of Israel. Aaron then spoke all the words the Lord spoke to Moses. He did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed and rejoiced because God had visited the children of Israel and because he had seen their affliction. Then the people bowed and worshipped. So, uh, basic storyline here. Moses goes back and tells his father-in-law Jethro what happened about this encounter at the burning bush, what the Lord had said, and the mission he was planning to undertake. Jethro gives his blessing. And then while Moses is in Midian, the Lord tells him that the king and those who wanted to kill him are dead. It's now safe to go back home. Moses saddles up the beasts of burden. I assume that they're donkeys and returns to Egypt with his family. They stop at an inn along the way. It says the angel of the Lord meets Moses and plans to kill him, apparently because he hadn't circumcised his son. Zipporah quickly circumcises her son and their lives are spared. Moses is reunited with his brother at the mountain of God. They, they exchange affection with one another. The two return to Egypt and show the miraculous signs of God to the people. The people rejoice and they believe in what Moses is saying, that God really appeared to them. They're, 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 they're happy. They believe God's answered their prayers and Moses can deliver them. Now, I'm perplexed by this strange encounter at the end when the angel of the Lord wants to kill Moses. All right, Why this is in here, what's going on, and 
I'll tell you right now, I, I haven't I haven't figured this one out. I <laughs> think there's there's more here than I, there's more here to the story. I don't I don't understand everything that's going on in this part of the story. And also, you may have noticed that I'm reading from the Septuagint. It, it reads a bit different in the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text, it says, Zipporah took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, and cast it at Moses' feet, and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me, or a bridegroom of blood. Uh, so he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. That's from the uh, that's from New King James Version, which is based on a Masoretic text. So the wording is a little different that uh, the blood of my son's circumcision has stopped versus you are a bridegroom of blood. So uh, just just notice that there, the text is different there. Um, so a few questions. One of them is, why didn't Moses circumcise his son? I don't know. And then how did Zipporah know that this was the problem when the angel showed up to kill him? And why did she react the way that she did of immediately circumcising her son with a with a, a stone knife and and uh, throwing the foreskin down? I don't know. I could guess. You could guess. Perhaps Moses had communicated to Zipporah, we're supposed to circumcise our son, and she didn't think that was a good idea, didn't want to do it, and blocked it. And uh, when the angel showed up to, uh, to kill Moses, she had a quick change of mind on the matter. So uh, that's what I come up with in my, in my imagination. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just trying to piece this together as to what was going on. But uh, it's just a, it's a rather strange story. God sends him on a mission and he wants to kill him. So uh, I, 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 uh, uh, that's, that's what it says. So... <laughs> We'll just accept it and move on from there. Then God says, the message to Pharaoh I thought was kind of interesting. It struck me. God says, Israel, the nation of Israel, is my firstborn. If you don't let my firstborn go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. So God is dealing as one king to another or one ruler to another. It says, my firstborn son is Israel, and you're enslaving them. You let them go or I'm taking your firstborn son out. That's, that's basically the way God's putting it. And then it says that God will harden Pharaoh's hearts. And we're, we're going to come back to that uh, in, in a moment. God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh he must... Let his people go. But then it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart and he won't let them go. In Exodus 4.21. And then several times in the rest of the story, as we're, as we're moving through the rest of Exodus, we'll see this is the first time mentioned. God says, I will harden his heart. And then time after time after time, it says in Exodus... God, God performed a miracle, one of the plagues happened, and then God hardened his heart and he wouldn't let the people go. Now, why would God be angry with Pharaoh if he is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Does that seem fair? God says, you tell Pharaoh to let the people go, but then I'm going to harden his heart and he won't let, let the people go. Is that is that fair of God? Is this is this a trap? Is 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 uh, 
Is Pharaoh just collateral damage in this story? Or does he bear any responsibility? And actually, this question is more important to Christians than you may, may be aware. Because it gets down to the question of, do we really have free will or not? Did Pharaoh have free will and free choice in this story, or did God override it and harden his heart? Because if Pharaoh didn't have free will, do we have free will? Do we have free choice? Does God arbitrarily harden people's hearts? Does he do that? If God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, how are you going to blame Pharaoh? John Calvin wrote in the 1500s, 1536 first edition came out, a work called Institutes of the Christian Religion. Okay? For some reason that boggles my mind, this book became one of the most famous writings in in all of Christian history, having a tremendous effect they wrote it in Latin first, is translated into French, translated into English, translated into all these other languages, and this is the basis of Calvinism. John Calvin, at the time that he wrote his, his magnum opus, his great work, was at the ripe old age of 27, after having studied law for four years. And it's written like, and I, I, I'm, I don't know how to, how to word this, uh, appropriately, it's written at, like something that was written by a lawyer, meaning a trial lawyer who's presenting one side of the story. I realize there are all different kinds of lawyers. How I have a very, very, very wonderful lawyer sitting at my left hand side. I've got many great friends who are lawyers. I went to high school. I was on the debating team. Most of my most of my friends from the debating team became lawyers. But I knew from the debating team they'd flip a coin. And you'd pick, you know, either either be the affirmative or or the negative, and you'd have to be able to argue both sides of the case. So the the question, we just had recently the the impeachment trial of the president, and so one side gets up and they present all the facts, and and they, they, they present all the facts in a light that makes their case look really good. And then the other side gets up, and they present all the facts in a light which makes their case look really good. And you think, well, these are two totally different stories. They, t- they can't possibly be referring to the same thing. Basically, what a lawyer will do is they'll say, well, here's the story I want to tell, and how do I organize the facts to support my story and to uh, detract from my opponents if, in, a, in a case of a trial law. That's, what they're, that's the job they're paid to do, to represent their clients in that way. So... Uh, John Calvin came up with a theory that was based largely on taking a few scriptures out of context and explaining a whole lot of other scriptures away based on on his theory that he came up with, his case that he's presenting. And his his theology is based very heavily on a passage in Romans. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 23 is at the core of Calvinism. And the problem is, the passage is taken totally out of context. If you want to understand that passage, you have to keep reading all of chapters 9, 10, and 11. If you read the whole thing and understand it in its entirety, it all makes sense. But, but Calvin just read that part, and, and this part in Romans 9, 14 to 23, 
It's it's a Roman. I'm sorry, Romans nine six to twenty nine is the passage that he bases it on. It discusses this passage in Exodus, and it discusses God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And let's take a look at that Romans chapter nine. This caused all kinds of problems for Christians today, based on how the Protestant reformers like Calvin took this passage out of context. Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 14 to 23. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to him say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So, Taking this passage out of context and not reading the rest of the next chapter and a half of Romans, the the point that Calvin makes is, number one, God can do whatever he wants for his own arbitrary reasons. Number two, God decides to harden certain people he chooses certain individuals, and have mercy on certain other individuals that he chooses. And therefore, number three, God has appointed certain individuals for wrath and judgment and others for eternal life. It has nothing to do with any choices we make. That's what Calvin taught, which to me is a horrifying picture of God. I mean, I, I, was, I was raised a Roman Catholic, and when I heard this, for, someone explained it to me, my, my attitude was, you have got to be kidding me. God created this whole thing, and he, he decided who's going to be lost and who's going to be saved just for his own good pleasure. It has nothing to do with any choices that we make. He created people knowing that they go to hell or that they go to heaven just completely randomly and arbitrarily, so what kind of a God is that? That's, that's, that? that doesn't sound anything like the God that, that I've been taught about. And this is, fits in with Calvin's theology, is sometimes called tulip theology, because it, it spells T-U-L-I-P, stands for each of the five points of Calvinism. T is total depravity of man. Okay, then All five points, if, if one of these points slips, and they're all wrong, but if one slips, you disprove one, the whole, the whole building collapses, basically. Total depravity of man, which says after the fall of man, that 
Man had a complete inability to respond to God in any positive way apart from God's initiative. All right? So that we can't, we can't seek God, we can't do anything good, we're completely corrupt and totally depraved after the fall. All human beings. Unconditional election and condemnation of individuals. So God looks out over all the billions of people and says, I'm going to save that one, that one, that one, and that one. I'm going to condemn all the rest just because I want to. For no reason other than that's my pleasure to do it that way. Limited atonement is the L in TULIP. Uh, Christ died only for some. Obviously, he didn't die for all because, uh, because most of the people were set for destruction. D is irresistible grace. If God picks you out, you can't block it, no matter what you do, because it's because you're all totally depraved anyway, so God arbitrarily picks out who's going to be saved, and that's it. We have nothing to do with it uh, on our own. We can't undo that, and of course, the fifth one, perseverance the saints, once saved, always saved, which is a complete corollary of that, which is, if God has picked you out, you can't lose your salvation because... You're no good anyway. You can't do anything good. It's all God's action. There's Basically, there is no free will. After the fall, free will was gone. So, with this view, does God want all men to be saved? No, he doesn't. Let's look at what 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul who's writing this. Paul's not going to contradict himself. When I think about Calvinism, this is one of the first verses, verses I think of. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. Start in verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, is that statement true? Does God really desire all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? If that's true, then obviously Calvin's system is completely wrong. If God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, then he's not going to arbitrarily... For, he's not going to arbitrarily sentence some, any, or most people, let alone most people, to condemnation, apart with, with no, no choice of their own. So, seeing God as a loving God who wants all people to repent, God so loved the world that he sent his son, that To, to, to see God that way makes this uh, this Calvinist framework a completely uh, uh, a completely violating the very nature and, and mission and purpose of God. Why Calvinism is enjoying a resurgence at this time in history, I have absolutely no idea. This is a it's a it's a horrific doctrine. It violates so many passages of scripture so much of the gospels is negated by this uh, why this is so popular with people that are educated intelligent is absolutely beyond understanding to me I, I just it's it's very difficult for me to 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 get that I started reading through Calvin's uh, institutes and uh, he's a very skilled debater I will say that he's a very very skilled at argumentation and debate. 
and presenting his case and uh, explaining away and using debating tricks to minimize and to destroy and undermine his opponents. But still, the scriptures are just too, too clear about this. Now, so let's go back. Let's step step back. Well, what about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Maybe he just maybe he wants all men except Pharaoh to be saved. Is there just maybe that was the one exception there? Does God? Uh, what do we do with God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Did he really do that? Well, it says in most of the places that talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But let's take a look at Exodus chapter eight and verse thirty-two. Sorry, Exodus chapter 8, and except to it is verse 28. It says, Pharaoh, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. So in most of the places it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but here it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So what do we do with that? Did God harden his heart six times, then Pharaoh hardened his heart once? Or are they both referring to the same thing from a different perspective? In 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 6, it speaks about the Philistines were uh, concerned that they had just taken on the Ark of God and it was more of a problem than they, they had bargained for. And they said, look, let's not be like the Egyptians and Pharaoh who hardened their hearts. Let's not copy their mistakes. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, it talks about people's hearts being hardened. And let's see what it says there. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry at that generation and said, they'll always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So here God's talking about to Christians about your hearts. He's saying, you need to be careful that none of you have a heart of unbelief, that none of you harden your hearts. This here in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is a great passage that talks about the importance of us persevering and not hardening our hearts like they did in the wilderness. And hardening our hearts because of sin. The reason why it's important for us to gather together, it says to exhort one another daily. While it's called today, lest any of you be hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin. So sin hardens our hearts, it says here, and we can harden our hearts if we're not careful. We have to be admonishing one another so that we don't end up with hardened hearts. This talks about, this doesn't talk about the Pharaoh story. This talks about while the, the, the Israelites were in the wilderness. Origen, writing around the year 225, he was, uh, he's a Christian writer from Alexandria in, in Egypt. And he said, you know, there are people who are teaching that we don't have free will based on what this story said in, in, um, uh, in, the, in Exodus about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And he says, you know, this is actually similar to what it says in Hebrews chapter 6, that God sends rain down, and the rain produces crops, but it also produces thorns. So, The same rain has two different effects. It produces something good and it produces something bad. And he says, guess what? He says that the the heat of the affliction of God does the same thing. Imagine if I had in front of me a lump of clay and a stick of butter. And I put them out in the sun on a very hot day. What would happen to the butter? It would melt. It would melt. It would get soft. And what would happen to the clay or mud? It would harden. It would get hard. Exactly right. So the same sun beating down on both of them has a completely different effect. And that's the point that Origen was making. Like the same rain has a different effect. It can produce something good or it can produce something bad. And the same sun. So we have to choose when God brings affliction into our lives. Do we want to have a heart that is like butter or wax that will soften when we go through tough times? Or are we going to choose to have a heart that is like like uh, clay or maybe like an egg? Okay, You heat up an egg, it gets hard. So think about breakfast. You got uh, I, I, my breakfast is I have an egg and I have an English an English muffin with uh, with butter on it, typically. So uh, the egg gets hard with heat, and the butter gets soft with heat. It's right there. You get to you get to choose what kind of a heart am I going to have? When when am I going to be hard in my affliction or soft in my affliction? So both statements are true. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart by choosing to have a sinful heart of unbelief that will be hardened by the, the uh, chastisement of God. So, from this story, I hope we can see, first of all, that this doesn't negate free will, that the chastising of God will reveal our hearts. And may we have a heart that is like butter that gets softer and wants to repent when we go through trials instead of a heart like Pharaoh who was hardened and and uh, by because of his own sinful desires. Amen.